Section 8 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 of Mechanical Arrangement in the Human Frame, Part 2. Of the Joints. 1. The above are a few examples of bones made remarkable by their configuration, but to almost all the bones belong joints, and in these, still more clearly than in the form or shape of the bones themselves, are seen both contrivance and contriving wisdom. Every joint is a curiosity, and is also strictly mechanical. There is the hinge joint, and the mortise and tenon joint, each as manifestly such and as accurately defined as any which can be produced out of a cabinet-maker's shop. And one or the other prevails as either is adapted to the motion which is wanted. E.g., a mortise and tenon, or ball and socket joint, is not required at the knee, the leg standing in need only of a motion backward and forward in the same plane, for which a hinge joint is sufficient. A mortise and tenon, or ball and socket joint, is wanted at the hip, that not only the progressive step may be provided for, but the interval between the limbs may be enlarged or contracted at pleasure. Now observe what would have been the inconveniency, i.e. both the superfluity and the defective articulation, if the case had been inverted, if the ball and socket joint had been at the knee, and the hinge joint at the hip. The thighs must have been kept constantly together, and the legs have been loose and straddling. There would have been no use that we know of in being able to turn the calves of the legs before, and there would have been great confinement by restraining the motion of the thighs to one plane. The disadvantage would not have been less if the joints at the hip and the knee had been both of the same sort, both balls and sockets, or both hinges. Yet why, independently of utility, and of a creator who consulted that utility, should the same bone, the thigh bone, be rounded at one end and channeled at the other? The hinge joint is not formed by a bolt passing through the two parts of the hinge, and thus keeping them in their places, but by a different expedient. A strong, tough, parchment-like membrane, rising from the receiving bones, and inserted all round the received bones, a little below their heads, encloses the joint on every side. This membrane ties, confines, and holds the ends of the bones together, keeping the corresponding parts of the joint, i.e. the relative convexities and concavities, in close application to each other. For the ball and socket joint, beside the membrane already described, there is in some important joints, as an additional security, a short, strong, yet flexible ligament, inserted by one end into the head of the ball, by the other into the bottom of the cup, which ligament keeps the two parts of the joint so firmly in their place that none of the motions which the limb naturally performs, none of the jerks and twists to which it is ordinarily liable, nothing less indeed than the utmost and the most unnatural violence, can pull them asunder. It is hardly indeed imaginable how great a force is necessary even to stretch, still more to break, this ligament. Yet so flexible is it as to oppose no impediment to the suppleness of the joint. By its situation also it is inaccessible to injury from sharp edges. As it cannot be ruptured, such is its strength. So it cannot be cut, except by an accident which would sever the limb. If I had been permitted to frame a proof of contrivance such as might satisfy the most distrustful inquirer, I know not whether I could have chosen an example of mechanism more unequivocal, or more free from objection, than this ligament. Nothing can be more mechanical. Nothing, however subservient to the safety, less capable of being generated by the action of the joint. 
I would particularly solicit the reader's attention to this provision as it is found in the head of the thigh bone, to its strength, its structure, and its use. It is an instance upon which I lay my hand. One single fact, weighed by a mind in earnest, leaves oftentimes the deepest impression. For the purpose of addressing different understandings and different apprehensions, for the purpose of sentiment, for the purpose of exciting admiration of the Creator's works, we diversify our views, we multiply examples. But for the purpose of strict argument, one clear instance is sufficient, and not only sufficient, but capable perhaps of generating a firmer assurance than what can arise from a divided attention. The jinglimus, or hinge joint, does not, it is manifest, admit of a ligament of the same kind with that of the ball and socket joint, but it is always fortified by the species of ligament of which it does admit. The strong, firm, investing membrane above described accompanies it in every part, and in particular joints this membrane, which is properly a ligament, is considerably stronger on the sides than either before or behind, in order that the convexities may play true in their concavities, and not be subject to slip sideways, which is the chief danger, for the muscular tendons generally restrain the parts from going further than they ought to go in the plane of their motion. In the knee, which is a joint of this form, and of great importance, there are superadded to the common provisions for the stability of the joint, two strong ligaments which cross each other, and cross each other in such a manner as to secure the joint from being displaced in any assignable direction. I think, says Chesselden, that the knee cannot be completely dislocated without breaking the cross ligaments. We can hardly help comparing this with the binding up of a fracture, where the fillet is almost always strapped across, for the sake of giving firmness and strength to the bandage. Another no less important joint, and that also of the jinglimus sort, is the ankle, yet though important, in order perhaps to preserve the symmetry and lightness of the limb, small, and on that account more liable to injury. Now this joint is strengthened, i.e. is defended from dislocation, by two remarkable processes or prolongations of the bones of the leg, which processes form the protuberances that we call the inner and outer ankle. It is part of each bone going down lower than the other part, and thereby overlapping the joint, so that, if the joint be in danger of slipping outward, it is curbed by the inner projection, i.e. that of the tibia, if inward by the outer projection, i.e. that of the fibula. Between both it is locked in its position. I know no account that can be given of this structure except its utility. Why should the tibia terminate at its lower extremity with a double end, and the fibula the same, but to barricade the joint on both sides by a continuation of part of the thickness of the bone over it? The joint at the shoulder, compared with the joint at the hip, though both ball and socket joints, discover a difference in their form and proportions, well suited to the different offices which the limbs have to execute. The cup or socket at the shoulder is much shallower and flatter than it is at the hip, and is also in part formed of cartilage set round the rim of the cup. The socket, into which the head of the thigh bone is inserted, is deeper, and made of more solid materials. This agrees with the duties assigned to each part. The arm is an instrument of motion, principally if not solely. Accordingly, the shallowness of the socket at the shoulder, and the yieldingness of the cartilaginous substance with which its edge is set round, and which in fact composes a considerable part of its concavity, are excellently adapted for the allowance of a freer motion and a wider range, both which the arm want. Whereas the lower limb, forming a part of the column of the body, having to support the body as well as to be the means of its locomotion, firmness was to be consulted as well as action. 
with a capacity for motion in all directions indeed as at the shoulder, but not in any direction to the same extent as in the arm, was to be united stability or resistance to dislocation, hence the deeper excavation of the socket and the presence of a less proportion of cartilage upon the edge. The suppleness and pliability of the joints we every moment experience, and the firmness of animal articulation, the property we have hitherto been considering, may be judged of from this single observation, that at any given moment of time there are millions of animal joints in complete repair and use for one that is dislocated, and this notwithstanding the contortions and wrenches to which the limbs of animals are continually subject. 2. The joints, or rather the ends of the bones which form them, display also in their configuration another use. The nerves, blood vessels, and tendons, which are necessary to the life or for the motion of the limbs, must, it is evident, in their way from the trunk of the body to the place of their destination, travel over the movable joints. And it is no less evident that, in this part of their course, they will have, from sudden motions and from abrupt changes of curvature, to encounter the danger of compression, attrition, or laceration. To guard fibers so tender against consequences so injurious, their path is in those parts protected with peculiar care, and that by a provision in the figure of the bones themselves. The nerves which supply the forearm, especially the inferior cubital nerves, are at the elbow conducted by a kind of covered way between the condyles, or rather under the inner extuberances of the bone which composes the upper part of the arm. At the knee, the extremity of the thigh bone is divided by a sinus or cliff into two heads or protuberances, and these heads on the back part stand out beyond the cylinder of the bone. Through the hollow, which lies between the hind parts of these two heads, that is to say, under the ham, between the hamstrings, and within the concave recess of the bone formed by the extuberances on each side, in a word, along a defile between rocks, pass the great vessels and nerves which go to the leg. Who led these vessels by a road so defended and secured? In the joint at the shoulder, in the edge of the cup which receives the head of the bone, is a notch which is joined or covered at the top with a ligament. Through this hole, thus guarded, the blood vessels steal to their destination in the arm instead of mounting over the edge of the concavity. 3. In all joints, the ends of the bones, which work against each other, are tipped with gristle. In the ball and socket joint, the cup is lined and the ball capped with it. The smooth surface, the elastic and unfriable nature of cartilage, render it of all substances the properest for the place and purpose. I should therefore have pointed this out amongst the foremost of the provisions which have been made in the joints for the facilitating of their action, had it not been alleged that cartilage in truth is only nascent or imperfect bone and that the bone in these places is kept soft and imperfect in consequence of a more complete and rigid ossification being prevented from taking place by the continual motion and rubbing of the surfaces. Which being so, what we represent as a designed advantage is an unavoidable effect. I am far from being convinced that this is a true account of the fact, or that if it were so, it answers the argument. To me, the surmounting of the ends of the bones with gristle looks more like a plating with a different metal than like the same metal kept in a different state by the action to which it is exposed. At all events, we have a great particular benefit, though arising from a general constitution. But this last, not being quite what my argument requires, lest I should seem by applying the instance to overrate its value, I have thought it fair to state the question which attends it. 4. 
In some joints, very particularly in the knees, there are loose cartilages or gristles between the bones and within the joint, so that the ends of the bones, instead of working upon one another, work upon the intermediate cartilages. Chesselden has observed that the contrivance of a loose ring is practiced by mechanics, where the friction of the joints of any of their machines is great. As between the parts of crook hinges of large gates, or under the head of the male screw of large vices. The cartilages of which we speak have very much of the form of these rings. The comparison, moreover, shows the reason why we find them in the knees rather than in other joints. It is an expedient, we have seen, which a mechanic resorts to, only when some strong and heavy work is to be done. So here the thigh bone has to achieve its motion at the knee, with the whole weight of the body pressing upon it, and often, as in rising from our seat, with the whole weight of the body to lift. It should seem also from Chesselden's account that the slipping and sliding of the loose cartilages, though it be probably a small and obscure change, humored the motion of the end of the thigh bone under the particular configuration which was necessary to be given to it for the commodious action of the tendons, and which configuration requires what he calls a variable socket, that is, a concavity, the lines of which assume a different curvature in different inclinations of the bones. 5. We have now done with the configuration, but there is also in the joints, and that common to them all, another exquisite provision, manifestly adapted to their use, and concerning which there can, I think, be no dispute, namely, the regular supply of a mucilage, more emollient and slippery than oil itself, which is constantly softening and lubricating the parts that rub upon each other, and thereby diminishing the effect of attrition in the highest possible degree. For the continual secretion of this important liniment, and for the feeding of the cavities of the joint with it, glands are fixed near each joint, the excretory ducts of which glands, dripping with their balsamic contents, hang loose like fringes within the cavity of the joints. A late improvement in what are called friction wheels, which consists of a mechanism so ordered as to be regularly dropping oil into a box which encloses the axis, the nave, and certain balls upon which the nave revolves, may be said, in some sort, to represent the contrivance in the animal joint. With this superiority, however, on the part of the joint, viz. that here the oil is not only dropped, but made. In considering the joints there is nothing, perhaps, which ought to move our gratitude more than the reflection how well they were. A limb should swing upon its hinge, or play in its socket, many hundred times in an hour, for sixty years together, without diminution of its agility, which is a long time for anything to last for anything so much worked and exercised as the joints are. This durability I should attribute, in part, to the provision which is made for the preventing of wear and tear, first by the polish of the cartilaginous surfaces, secondly by the healing lubrication of the mucilage, and, in part, to that astonishing property of animal constitutions, assimilation, by which, in every portion of the body, let it consist of what it will, substance is restored and waste repaired. Movable joints, I think, compose the curiosity of bones, but their union, even where no motion is intended or wanted, carries marks of mechanism and of mechanical wisdom. The teeth, especially the front teeth, are one bone fixed in another like a peg driven into a board. The sutures of the skull are like the edges of two saws clapped together in such a manner as that the teeth of one enter the intervals of the other. We have sometimes one bone lapping over another, and planed down at the edges. Sometimes also the thin lamella of one bone received into a narrow furrow of another. In all which varieties, 
we seem to discover the same design, viz. firmness of juncture without clumsiness in the seam. End of section 8